You can tell them in the country, tell them in the town. The miners down in Mingo laid their shovels down. We won't pull another pillow another ton or lift another finger till the union we have won. Stand up, boys, let the bosses know. Turn your buckets over, turn your lanterns low. There's fire in our hearts and fire in our soul, but there ain't gonna be no fire in the hole. If you want to learn history, read a history text. If you want to understand it, read historical fiction. Jeff Barnes was born and raised in Tazewell, Virginia, in the heart of coal country. He lives, writes, and practices law in Richmond. His novel Mingo, published in 2021, was inspired by his childhood fascination with the 1919 Maitwan Massacre, which occurred during the bitter, brutal coal mine wars and the stories his father told of growing up in Pocahontas, Virginia in the 1920s with friends who were first-generation Americans of Hungarian and Italian descent. Last month, Jeff gave a talk on Mingo, Maitwan, and the Coal Wars of West Virginia to the Virginia chapter of the Labor and Employment Relations Association. On today's show, we'll have an excerpt from that talk. And on Labor History in Two. The year was 1936. That was the day more rubber workers sat down in Akron, Ohio. I'm Chris Garlock, and this is Labor History Today. Set against the backdrop of coal-rich, hardscrabble West Virginia and quote-unquote civilized, segregated Virginia, the novel Mingo reveals the deep divide between corporate might and those seeking a fair wage for an honest day's work. The 2021 novel plums the depths of brotherly love, betrayal, and the power of reconciliation amidst the deadly struggle to unionize America's coal fields. The book is thoughtfully researched, beautifully written, and culminates in the historic Battle of Blair Mountain in the summer of 1921. In a talk at the Virginia chapter of the Labor and Employment Relations Association last month, author Jeff Barnes discussed his novel and explored the mine wars along with issues of class, race, and labor relations that continue to roil America today. We've got a link to the entire talk in the show notes. Here's Jeff. Mingo refers to Mingo County. It is one of three of the most uh, Southwest counties in West Virginia that were the last to organize, last to unionize. By the uh, 1910s, 20s, every other coal county in, in West Virginia had organized. And in fact, in most of the Eastern coal fields, they had organized. But Mingo and then Logan County, which is just to the North and East, and McDowell County, which is just to the South and East of Mingo County, they were the last three to organize. And there was uh, this uh, bloody struggle, if you will, to, to organize those counties. And the book tells the story of fictional brothers, Derwood and Bascom Matney, who get separated in 1908 upon the death of their mother. And the younger brother, Derwood, who is eight years old at the time, gets sent to Richmond to live with his ma's favorite cousin, Grace, and her 
husband Walker, who is a well-heeled, well-to-do railroad attorney living in Richmond. And while Bascom, who was 13 or 14 at the time, remains behind toiling in the mines beside their father, who's descending into alcoholism. Derwood grows up in uh, affluence on Monument Avenue under the influence of intensely capitalist Walker, while Bascom feels that life is passing him by in the mines or the pit, as they called it. And when they reunite 12 years later, it's on the day of the Matewan Massacre or the Battle of Matewan, as it's variously called, which was May of 1920. And when they reunite, they find themselves on opposite sides of this second coal mine war and hurtling towards the, the final confrontation at the Battle of Blair Mountain. And the book explores their divergent paths and examines how time and physical distance and ideological differences can drive a wedge between even the closest people. Back to how I came to the story, I grew up in Tazzles, 19 miles southwest of Bluefield, West Virginia. My father grew up in Pocahontas, West Virginia. Pocahontas is right on the Virginia-West Virginia border. Coal was first mined in Pocahontas in 1884, and it was a coal boom town in the late 1800s. There were over 20 saloons in Pocahontas and even an opera house. And if I remember correctly, stories my father told, his father tended draft mules in the mine in Pocahontas, as a young boy, and this would have probably been in the 1890s, I'm assuming. And I was intrigued by my father's tales about his childhood in Pocahontas, Virginia, because most of his friends were first-generation Americans of Hungarian and, and Italian descent whose parents had come to America, much like the Paduzzi's in the novel, looking for a better way of life. Uh, and he told me that most of his friends' parents didn't speak English or, or certainly didn't speak it that well, which was so uh, different than my upbringing a couple of generations later. Another thing that drew me to this story was my childhood fascination with this Battle of Matewan or the Matewan Massacre, this gun battle that erupted on uh, the main street of, or Mate Street, it was essentially a main street of Matewan in May of 1920. And it was a gun battle between dozens of coal miners and 11 Baldwin Feltz agents. And Baldwin Feltz agents were security guards hired by the mines to keep the mines open and the union out. And when the gun smoke cleared, seven of the 11 Baldwin Feltz agents lay dead on the street. Two coal miners were dead. And the mayor of Matewan, Cabell Testerman, was also dead. And I was fascinated uh, and intrigued by how a gun battle uh, could erupt on what was essentially the main street of a town in broad daylight involving dozens of gunmen uh, during my father's lifetime in a town very similar from his and, and just down the road from where he grew up. Another thing that always interested me and fascinated me were stories about brothers who ended up on opposite sides of the Civil War. You know, if blood is thicker than water. How does that happen? So I decided to marry these two interests uh, in writing this story. And then I, the final thing that led me to the story was John Sayles' 1987 movie, Matewan. And so in J January, roughly January of 2017, I began researching the mine wars history, and particularly this Matewan shootout or, or massacre. And what I discovered after months of research were the bones of a great, if overlooked, story of the mine wars. And I encountered these amazing real-life characters, such as Mother Jones. She was quite the union firebrand. She was frequently in West Virginia. She loved the coal miners. She, she was a socialist and, and uh, supported all union activities, but the coal miners were her particular favorites, and she referred to them as her boys. Another character I encountered was Sid Hatfield. Sid was the police chief of the town of Matewan, and he organized and led the miners 
in this gun battle in May, well, May of 1920. And for that, he was revered by the coal miners and reviled by the coal operators. But he and about 19 others were tried for the murders of these Baldwin Phelps agents and was acquitted. And the national press was there and he was quite the celebrity. Another character was Don Chafin. He was the sheriff of Logan County. Logan, again, was one of the three counties that was the last to unionize. And he was known as the czar of Logan County because he was paid very handsomely by the coal companies to keep the unions out. It was said that he made 10 cents a ton per coal uh, dug in Logan County and was a millionaire by the early 1920s. And then Tom Feltz, he was the owner of the Baldwin Feltz Detective Agency or Security Agency that, again, the, the coal operators hired to, to keep the mines open and the union out. In addition to these interesting characters, I discovered some just amazing real-life events that Ripley wouldn't believe, like the February 7th, 1913 Bull Moose special attack on the Hollygrove tent camp. These tent camps were formed and funded by the United Mine Workers, and they uh, took in miners and their families who had been kicked out of company housing. Uh, in the early 1900s, I've read that about 90% of all West Virginia coal miners lived in company housing, and the companies owned the towns, they owned the houses that the miners lived in, they owned the company stores, and if you were if you joined the union or were sus uh, suspected of union activity, your belongings were thrown out on the street and you were left on your own. Many of these folks, of course, were immigrants with no family, no places to go. And so the union set up these tent camps and one was set up at, at Holly Grove. The Bull Moose Special was a train that the uh, coal companies used to haul strike breakers up into the mountains. As you might imagine, the strikers didn't care much for the strike breakers, and so they would sit up in the mountains and take pot shots at the train as it chugged up the mountain. To protect the people on the train, they armored the train with steel plating on its sides, and they armed it with machine guns on top of the train. And so on February 7, uh, 1913, there had been a gun battle earlier that day in Mucklow between Baldwin Feltz agents and coal miners, and a couple of Baldwin Feltz agents were killed. So that night, Sheriff Bonner of, of Kanawha County commandeered the Bull Moose Special, and he drove it through this tent camp. And, and mind you, there were tents on the other side of the tracks, too. And they shot up these tents, these homes, if you will, with machine guns. And fortunately, the miners had gotten word. Most of the miners were out. But one person, a man named Sesco Estep, was killed. Another event that I encountered was the August, I think, 1st, 1921 murder of Sid Hatfield after being acquitted for the his role in the Battle of Matewan, Sid Hatfield and his right-hand man, Ed Chambers, were then charged with blowing up a mine tipple in McDowell County. Like Logan, McDowell tended to be more anti-union. And so on the day of his trial, he and his uh, wife, arm in arm, and Ed Chambers and his wife, arm in arm, were walking up the exterior steps to the courthouse lawn when a Baldwin Feltz agent named C.L. Lively and two other uh, men appeared at the top of the steps, gun blazing, and they gunned down Sid Hatfield and Ed Chambers. I I'm going to digress just a bit and tell you of an interesting encounter I had in August. I was um, in, in West Virginia selling books, and I had a woman come up to me and ask me if I would sign a copy of my book, and I told her I was happy to, and she said something to the effect of uh, this, that Mingo is the most historically accurate depiction of the mind wars she'd ever read, and I asked her, you know, how is it that you know so much about the mine wars? Why are you so interested in it? And she said, <clears throat> one of my relatives uh, was is a character in your book. And I said, excuse me? She said, one of the Baldwin Feltz, my father-in-law was one of the Baldwin Feltz agents in your book. And I said, which one? 
And she said, C.L. Lively was the man who shot and killed Sid Hatfield. And it was that that killing that then kicked off the Battle of Blair Mountain, which was the largest armed insurrection in U.S. history after the Civil War. I was shocked that I'd never heard of this battle between 10,000 miners dubbed rednecks for the red bandanas they tied around their necks and 3,000 state troopers and mine guards and assorted townspeople that Don Chafin had organized and who were dug in on top of uh, Blair Mountain trying to prevent the miners from getting over the mountain into Logan County and then into Mingo County. They were going to open up the jails there and liberate their pro-union brethren who were in those jails. Don Chafin's forces, though smaller in number, had better equipment. They had automatic weapons. They had machine guns. They even employed three biplanes that dropped homemade bombs on the advancing coal miners. The miners outnumbered the uh, Don Chafin's forces, but their arms weren't quite as up-to-date. And the battle only ended when President Harding sent in federal troops and made everybody put down their guns and go home. You're listening to Labor History Today. Hey, if you're a regular listener, please help other folks discover the show by sharing it on social media and click the like button on your podcast. Thanks so much. Back now to Jeff Barnes and Mingo, Matewan and the Co-Wars of West Virginia. So I realized that after doing this research that there was a great story waiting to be told and one I think deserved to be told because we're still dealing with all the same issues of race and class and labor relations back then and thought if I could come up with a couple of compelling characters to weave through this rich seam of historical events and interact with these colorful characters that there was a story there to be told and in the process introduce readers to the mind wars. I've heard my good friend David Robbins say if you want to if you want to learn history read a history text if you want to understand it read historical fiction. And to his point, I had a friend of a friend who read Mingo before it was published. And, and she said something like if she'd encountered the mind wars in a history text, her eyes would have glazed over. But in the context of historical fiction, it was accessible and interesting. And then she went out and did her own research after that. And I think that illustrates the power of historical fiction to um, introduce readers to a, a, a time in history or an event in history that they might not otherwise know about or think they might be interested in and hopefully present it in a way that makes it accessible. Um, I, I'm going to switch gears here a little bit and talk about a few of the themes of Mingo. The, the working title was My Brother's Keeper because the book is replete with instances of characters helping each other. Um, one of the uh, issues that the book deals with is class struggle. Uh, <clears throat> you've got Richmond, uh, Monument Avenue, Richmond folks versus these two boys who grew up in the mountains of West Virginia. And you've got some characters, namely uh, Hattie, uh, who is the black domestic worker in the home that Derwood went to live in and that Bascom spent some time in, who demonstrates that honor and character and dignity are not things that are dependent upon where we're born or to whom we're born, but they're things that are innate to us. Uh, don't depend on our station in life, if you will, and our affluence and our education. Race was one of the, the big issues in the book and, and how it was handled uh, differently in the mountain culture of West Virginia versus what Appalachian novelist Lee Smith has called the highfalutin culture of Richmond in the Old South. Um, when both boys arrive in Richmond and they meet Hattie, this black domestic worker, they both refer to her as ma'am. They call her ma'am and she tells them both, don't do that, please. It's, it's better if you don't do that. And Bascom was 18 years old when he encounters her for the first time, and he pushes back, and he says, well, where I come from, manners is manners. And she said, I understand, but it's not done here. 
I'll know you're thinking it even if you're not saying it. Another event that deals with race in the book surrounds an event at the Robert E. Lee Monument, which is on Monument Avenue. And it's a celebration honoring Robert E. Lee and Bascom, who's just arrived in Richmond, a little bit confused. And he goes down into the kitchen early that morning to talk with Hattie because they're all going to be going to this uh, to this event. Hattie's not, but the family is. And he's confused because he wants to know what all the fuss is over somebody who's been dead 20 or 30 years and who was the losing general in the Civil War. And she said, what you have to understand is that Robert E. Lee is the most revered figure in Richmond. And he asked her, well, how does that make you feel? And she said, very poignantly, I keep my feelings to myself. Again, showing the stratification based on race that existed in, in the South at the time. During this period of time, in the early 1910s, 20s, the only two local union districts that had Blacks as members was District 17, which included Mingo County, and District 29, which included Beckley, nearby Beckley. And the, the most overarching theme in the book was this theme of the struggle between labor and management. As I said earlier, the union was trying to organize these three southernmost counties in West Virginia, and the independent coal operators were bound and determined to employ any means necessary to prevent it from happening, resulting in this life and death struggle and earning uh, Mingo the nickname Bloody Mingo. It was seen by many people as a political struggle between socialists and capitalists. But at the end of the day, I think for the rank and file miners, it was a bread and butter issue. As Bascom said, they don't care if you're a Democrat or Republican or a socialist. What they cared about was being paid an honest wage, a fair wage for an honest day's work in a relatively safe environment where they were valued more than the draft mules that hauled the coal to the surface. And they saw the union as their best way to achieve those goals. And they were going to support whatever party or politician supported the union, or at least didn't oppose the union. And just like I'm not an historian, I'm not a social scientist, nor am I a political scientist. There's a saying in the book about two sides of a pancake. Remember, a pancake, no matter how thin it is, always has two sides. And many people have told me it was their favorite line in the book. And to set the stage, in, in Chapter 45, Derwood has returned to Mate Wine in 1920. It's his first time home since he left in 1908. And he just happens to arrive on the day of the Matewan Massacre, the Battle of Matewan, and he witnesses this carnage. And after the gun smoke clears, he finds himself on the wrong end of Sid Hatfield's gun. And Sid Hatfield has identified him as having been with the Baldwin-Feltz agents before the gun battle started. And he's going to arrest him, pistol whip him, shoot him something, but it's not going to be good for Derwood. And fortunately for Derwood, He's uh, rescued by a woman who had been on the train that had pulled up to the station just as a gun smoke was clearing. And she pretended that Derwood was her husband in order to get him away from the clutches of Sid Hatfield. And the two of them, her name was Irma, and the two of them meet later that night for dinner. And Derwood is telling her he'd come back to Matewan for the first time in 12 years and that his goal was to make the lawless bastards pay who had killed his fictional friend, the fictional nephew of, of Tom Feltz. And Irma asked him, well, does that mean bring them to justice? And he said, before today, that was my goal. But after what I just witnessed, pay means pay. I'm going to read a brief excerpt, uh, starting with Irma. These lawless bastards, as you call them, have you stopped to think what's driven them to the point they would engage in a gun battle in the middle of town in broad daylight? Derwood pushed away from the table. 
All I'm saying is that no matter how thin the pancake is, there's always two sides. Before you debase yourself or worse, get yourself killed, you might want to figure out what's really going on. I think most people who take the time to study the mind wars history will be like me and, and you, you can't help but come down and, and feel moved by their plight. And yet I wasn't trying to draw any degree of moral equivalency between the sides in this. I wasn't trying to draw it between the, the coal miners and the, and the owners and, and the Baldwin Feltz agents that they employed. Uh, but what I was trying to do was use the power of historical fiction to explore how someone like Durwood could end up on the opposite side of a mind war from his brother, Bascom, a brother he loved and admired. And after all, they were both good men with good intentions. And so, you know, how does, how does it happen? How do they end up on other sides? And what does it say, if anything, about us today? Because after all, these same issues of race and class and labor relations, plus so many more, abortion, gun rights, environmental issues, continue to roil us. In Jamie's review, or last paragraph reads, intentionally or not, Mingo emphasizes that we are too quick to draw battle lines, too intent on segregating each other into categories of poor and rich, socialist and capitalist, worker and boss, hillbilly and elite. By the time the bullets have begun to fly, all of us have lost. <clears throat> I heard an interview um, of a gentleman who grew up in Matewan, a black uh, man who grew up in Matewan named Steve Fullen, and, and he served on the town council for a number of years. And his grandparents, John and Mary Brown, were very important townspeople in Matewan during this period of time. They were a black couple, the first black couple to own a dry cleaning business in West Virginia. And he said that his grandfather told him when he was a boy, never let a single aspect of your character define who you are, not your race, not your gender, not your education. And yet, that increasingly seems to be what we are falling prey to. Instead of looking for things that we share in common with one another, we're too quick to self-identify with others who share a single characteristic or view to the exclusion of others. And this in turn, I fear leads to ignoring the other side of the pancake or worse, refusing to acknowledge that it even exists. I don't know if things are getting worse, but there are some both reasons to be concerned and some hope, including this organization. Another, uh, well, a topic, uh, an article I read on this topic by Nicholas Goldberg was Sotomayor Thomas and Supreme Court Friendships. And he says the Supreme Court's most liberal justice says the court's most conservative justice is kind and thoughtful and a friend. Progressive Twitter is highly unimpressed. The article went on to discuss a great friendship between Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Justice, Justice Antonin Scalia, who, as we all know, occupied opposite spots on the court's ideological polls, and yet they enjoyed a love of opera, shared a love of opera, food, travel, and even spent many New Year's Eves together with their spouses. The article then goes on and discusses Sotomayor's friendship with Justice Thomas, and she um, described to a group of lawyers how kind he is. And she said, that's why I can be friends with him and still continue our daily battle over our difference of opinion in cases. And the remarks on Twitter were surprisingly, unsurprisingly critical. Bunk read one, so tone deaf another. Third said she was either drunk or smoking marijuana. And then finally, oh, expletive deleted, gag me. And Goldberg continued that for many Americans on the left and the right, this is a time for battle stations, not dates at the opera. Friendships across the aisle and even basic civility towards one's adversaries are often viewed as a kind of betrayal or at least hypocrisy. Efforts on the part of politicians to find common ground are seen by many as consorting with the enemy. Democracy requires cooperation and compromise with one's political opponents. 
That's almost its definition. It requires a basic, even if grudging, respect for adversaries. And if you can't muster that, then it requires at least an adherence to agreed upon norms. And he goes on to say something else that really resonated with me. To make democracy function again, it means we're possible to recognize the humanity of those we disagree with. I have to remind myself daily of the pancake rule. And as my daughters would tell you, if they were here, I quite frequently fall short of the mark. But the alternative is not an option if we want to move forward, nor is it an option to shout down or shut out of the public square those with whom we disagree. And yet this is increasingly the posture adopted by many of our fellow citizens today, particularly, I'm afraid, among our youth. So how did we get here? One culprit, it seems to me, is the increasing polarization of America's congressional uh, seats and the dwindling number of what's known as swing seats. In 2002, there were 124 swing seats. In 2022, this most recent congressional election, there were only 30 swing seats out of 435. So what this tells us is we're not only choosing social media that reinforces our biases, but we live in increasingly homogenous districts where thoughtful debate on issues isn't occurring and dissent isn't tolerated, the result being that the only meaningful elections are increasingly occurring in the primaries. Another way I think we got here is because of social media. And despite all of the potential for good that social media holds, I believe we're all negatively affected by two aspects of it that are counterproductive to a healthy democracy. First, because of the anonymity of the medium, we often say things on social media that we would media that we'd never say in person because it eliminates that face-to-face -face filter that promotes social uh, civility and social discourse. And then the second negative aspect is the echo chamber by which we can choose to only listen to uh, those with whom we agree, and that's compounded by the algorithms that the social media companies use to just force feed us more of, of what we are already listening to. And I've often wondered if good friends Orrin Hatch and Teddy Kennedy could have had such warm relations in today's social media-driven world. Back in the 70s and 80s, after a hard day of advocating for starkly different positions on the Senate floor, they could retire to a Capitol Hill restaurant or bar and renew their friendship and their relationship. And, and in turn, that would hopefully help them the next day work together to try to um, pass le legislation that, that benefits everybody. Back then, there might have been a Capitol Hill reporter who would have seen them and reported on it in some obscure Capitol Hill publication. But today, if they were spotted socializing, numerous photos taken by people like you and me on our smartphones would be snapped, would be appended to social media posts, and then seen in real time throughout their states, which in turn would lead to people accusing them of consorting with the enemy and the likely outcome would be one or both of them would be primaried in the next election. So let's think about all this for a moment and reflect on Mingo. Durwood, who left Mate Juan at eight years old to grow up an influence on Richmond's Monument Avenue and who'd been led to believe the unionists were socialists or worse even communists, a view burnished by his time fighting the Bolsheviks in yeah. Russia as a part of the American Expeditionary Forces, finally came to realize the truth was far more nuanced as he began to take Irma's advice to consider the other side of the pancake, which in turn led to a re reconciliation with his beloved brother. Uh, let me conclude by saying that there are two things I hope readers of Mingo take away. First is this idea that every pancake has two sides and its implications uh, for us in our everyday lives. Uh, there is, there's hope there in programs like the One Stall Small Step Program, which brings people of different backgrounds and viewpoints uh, together. And it's based on the contact theory, which holds that 
interpersonal contact can help in reducing prejudices and fostering relationships and cooperation. As founder Dave Isay put it, he began one small step to, quote, ban the flames of decency. And he says that, our, that their mission is to convince the country it's our patriotic duty to see the humanity and people with whom we disagree. From what I've learned about Lyra, your organization that so kind to have me here today, it was founded on these very principles of two sides of the pancake because you bring together people from all sides of the labor employment issue, labor representatives and employment representatives and academics just for this very purpose to have these kinds of discussions so that uh, you're fostering these relationships. I think your, your slogan is advancing workplace relations and you've been doing it since your founding and I think commended to uh, you know, that you continue to, to do this. And the second takeaway is I hope I've nurtured an interest in my readers to learn more about the history of the mine wars and its relevance to us today. The West Virginia Mine Wars Museum in Matewan and do a wonderful job of curating this rich history. If you're ever in the neighborhood of Matewan or just want to look it up on your computer, I would encourage you to do so. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1936. That was the day more rubber workers sat down in Akron, Ohio. Tire builders in Goodyear's plant number two, department 251A, sat down when 700 co-workers were laid off. Goodyear had been running four six-hour shifts. They hoped to reduce the workforce by implementing three eight-hour shifts with no increase in pay. Management moved quickly to fire all of the strikers. By this day, all 4,000 workers at Goodyear voted to strike over the layoffs and firings, the speed-ups, and the new shift hours and pay. The enormous 11-mile facility was immediately shut down. In his book, Strike, historian Jeremy Breacher indicates that few, if any, were union members. The United Rubber Workers Union was hesitant to associate itself with the sit-down. Rubber workers organized themselves. They set up 24-hour pickets at dozens of gates, built striker shanties, and set their demands. After six days, the United Rubber Workers Union sanctioned the strike. Breacher described the scene writing, quote, The company secured an injunction against mass picketing. 10,000 tradespeople from across the city gathered with lead pipe and baseball bats to stop 150 sheriff's deputies from opening the plants. The Summit County Central Labor Council guaranteed a general strike if Law and Order League vigilantes carried out their threatened March 18th attack on picket lines. The vigilante movement was paralyzed. Federal mediators demanded a return to work and arbitration. Workers responded, no, no, a thousand times no. I'd rather die than say yes. Finally, Goodyear capitulated on most of the demands, except formal recognition of the union. Rubber workers returned to work largely victorious. After renewed struggles, workers finally won union recognition a year later. And the boys let the bosses go. Turn your pockets over, lay your lands low. There's fire in your heart and fire in your soul. Hang on to be no fire in the hole. And that's it for this week's edition of Labor History Today. You can subscribe to LHT on your favorite podcast app. Even better if you like what you hear. Sure hope you do. Like it in your podcast app, pass it along, and leave a review. That really helps folks to find the show. Labor History in Two is a partnership between the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. That's a labor-themed radio show out of Pennsylvania. 
Very special thanks this week to the Virginia chapter of LARA, the Labor and Employment Relations Association, which sponsored Jeff Barnes' talk. Again, we've got a link to the entire talk in the show notes. Our music today included several versions of Fire in the Hole by Hazel Dickens, Kentucky Traditional Arts, and The Wild Rumpus. Labor History Today is produced by the Labor Heritage Foundation and the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. You can keep up with all the latest labor arts news by subscribing to the Labor Heritage Foundation's free weekly newsletter at laborheritage.org. The Labor History Today team includes Ben Blake, Patrick Dixon, Leon Fink, Sherry Lincoln, Joe McCartan, Evan Papp, Jessica Pozak, and Alan Weirdak. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks for listening. Keep making history and see you next time. Oh, uh-huh.